if you read many biographies, biography is the most, it's the highest selling genre of book. If you read many biographies of famous people, you will hear this pretty common tension expressed generally. Because a person who has achieved great success, they've achieved fame or infamy, they often talk about the surprising emptiness of it. Having gotten the thing they strived for, it feels hollow. Is this all there is? It's commonly expressed. I thought this would feel different. Uh, you'll hear this in interviews after a Super Bowl, after an NBA championship. Uh, a gold medal is one. Athletes routinely fall into a deep depression. I gave my life for this? I thought it would feel different. Uh, Ashley Knoll is a Thomas Cranmer scholar, and he's also uh, he's an Anglican priest. He's uh, been regularly a chaplain to the U.S. Olympic team, and he's a friend of our diocese. And I've heard him say that very often the pain of success that athletes experience is as great or greater than the pain of losing. Uh, the, the month after the Olympics is a collapse for not the ones that lost, the ones that won. Is this all there is? Now, on the other side of this, this is a tension. The other side is uh, most famous folks, despite finding this emptiness, can't walk away from it. Surprisingly empty, but they can't let go of receiving worship. They can't let go of the honor. They hate the prison of living in this fishbowl, but they can't imagine life without it. It's addicting. Now, there is something in each one of us that stretches out for that. Maybe not for fame, but for a place of honor. I'm not talking about wanting a meaningful life. We, we want a meaningful life. I'm not talking about seeking a life that has value and has a contribution. I'm not talking about this good thing that's built into our good design. Because when God created humans, he gave us a meaningful life. He gave humans a significant role on the earth. He made us stewards of all the earth. He also made us stewards of relationships. He gave us responsibilities as man, as woman, as husband, as wife, then as parent, as child, as sibling. Most significantly, he gave us a role as knowers of God. What a wonderful role to know God. Seeking to hold these things, seeking to, to steward these well, meaningfully, that's right. That's good and right. So I, what I'm talking about is different. This something in each of us that hungers for more than stewardship, more than receiving the gift and using it well. It's connected to Adam and Eve. It's connected to what they did when they chose to believe Satan. He told them that God was untruthful. God's putting one over on you. And that if you would just 
you accept that, that he's untruthful, and act on it, then you would become godlike. He's withholding. You step in and you will achieve godlikeness. If you would stretch out, transgress the bounds, reject limits, ignore the wonderful glories that God has given you, then you would have honor and glory like God's. It's that stretch that's still in us. That's the gift of Satan. And that's still in us. And it's at the root of our selfish desires. And it's those corrupted desires that are, are rooted, that are still in the fallen flesh, that Lent is all about. So you recall with me on Ash Wednesday, we thanked the Lord for giving us a new heart, a new mind, redeeming us. We acknowledge, though, that our flesh and another part of our mind are still rebellious. Thank you for a renewed creation. And yet, we carry death around with us. So we ask the Lord to give us repentance as we entered into Lent. We, we ask, repentance means, right, a change of mind. We asked for that. Would you transform us by the renewal of our minds? And so through the Lenten season, we've been listening. We've been listening for questions that he asks us, questions that pierce, questions that do, that do the renewal. Questions that reveal the disordered affections, that show where we've set our minds, where we've set our hearts and affections on things that destroy us. And through the scriptures, he has brought attention to this human stretch for godlikeness that's so deeply woven into our flesh. Inevitably, Jesus would have to alert his disciples, this new community that he was forming around him, to their corrupt desires. That though they're following him, they are carrying corrupted desires. He came to redeem them, and so he would have to undo some of these basic desires that corrupt his people. Because that's what his work is about. Now, predictably, it didn't take very long from the time that Jesus said aloud that he was the Christ for his followers to show that they are true sons of Adam and Eve. So we're in Mark chapter 8. If you'd turn there, please. Beginning in verse 27, this uh, revealing of their desires went something like this. Jesus took his disciples on a field trip. They went to the heart of pagan worship in Israel, in, in the Eastern Roman Empire, in that region. Caesarea Philippi. There, uh, there is a cave, a grotto with a pool for the worship of the goat god Pan. He's a, a nature deity. And also in Caesarea Philippi, there was a brand new sparkling temple to Augustus Caesar. So he takes them into that place. And on the field trip, he urged his disciples to consider, think about, who am I? How, how do I 
fit here? And they said, through Peter, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. That's it. Jesus affirms it. Yes, that's right. But don't tell anyone. It's not time to make this publicly known. So there it is. John the Baptist had said so. He, he had announced that this guy coming from the wilderness, this is the Christ, this is the one that we've been waiting for. And then Jesus had been doing all sorts of things to demonstrate his authority. To, it looked like he was the promised one, but he hadn't declared it. He hadn't said it. He hadn't even talked about it openly with the disciples. But now he brings it up. They say it. He affirms it. Then the penny drops for the disciples. Immediately they, be, they begin thinking, aha, yes, now things are going to get going. Now he's talking about it. And look at this. We are in the inner ring. He had just, he dri driven the crowds away. No crowds. He brought us here. We're on the inside. He's shaking it out. We're the ones he's going to start this revolution with. So they're, they're pleased about how things is, this is going. But then Jesus starts talking weird. As he does. How he sees this mission going. As the Christ, he is going to run counter to the groups of leaders in Israel. He is going to oppose them. There's, he, has, he has, in fact, no intention of winning them over. He has no intention of uh, uniting, the, the, uniting Israel. He has no intention of the, getting these disparate groups who've been arguing with each other to pull together. Instead, his mission as Christ is going to be rejection by the rulers. His mission is going to be killed and, and to rise from death. This is God's plan. Jesus is saying. So, yes, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, let me tell you the plan. He states it authoritatively. He states it plainly. Mark says, he said this plainly. This is the mission he's on. This is how he and his followers are going to be fully obedient to the Father. This is not what the disciples want. Not at all. This is nothing like what they want. Peter steps in, familiarly, and he begins to rebuke his master. He, re he begins to rebuke the Christ. This can't be what God wants because this is not what I want. This is not what we want. This can't be. It's certainly not what the society wants. This is not what Israel needs. Jesus responds here with authority and reveals what's going on. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus is, he, he pulls the curtain aside Here's what's going on. Jesus takes them back to the Garden of Eden. He takes us back here to the Garden of Eden. 
Satan has been whispering the same old things to his disciples. It's the same stuff. You can be godlike, knowing what's best. Peter, James, John, you know what's best. What God seems to be saying here, he's off. Now, now, now it's your moment. Just believe that God isn't telling the truth and act accordingly. Believe that his plan isn't the best one. Stretch out your hand. Take your place of honor. It's the same story. And Peter complies with it. Peter is a son of Adam. He responds right according to his flesh. That's right. I know, I know best. I'm not going to accept that this is what God is saying. And Jesus says no. Because this thing, this thing that's in us, this thing that's in the disciples' fallen flesh, that's in all the sons of Adam and Eve, is not in his flesh. Because he's come to restore it. He wants the things of God. He wants the plans of God. He wants the way. He wants the will of God. Singly, without wavering, without doubt. He only wants the will of God. And compared with that, uh, there is nothing appealing in the perishing realms. There is nothing, what, what the disciples are wanting, there is nothing that appeals to Jesus in what they are saying. Because compared with the will of God, all the rest is illusory. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, opposer. He's exposing the corruption of the flesh. And that is what he's come to undo. That's the mind he's come to displace and to replace with a mind that is obedient to God. So now, now, for the sake of the community, he calls the crowds. He, he calls everyone together. He's been talking just to his 12. He calls everyone around who's there because he wants to offer them repentance, to offer them all a change of mind, a change of thinking. Verse 34, then, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. What Jesus has come to, to bring and to give back to humanity is a different kind of life. He's come to give back life with God. He's come to give back to people 
the will of God. This is eternal life, Jesus says elsewhere, that they may know the Father and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And he has, Jesus has brought back what was lost by the betrayal in Eden, lost by the rejection of God's authority, a life of intimacy with God, a life fully oriented to him, so that a life fully oriented to him so that everything else that he gives us could be fully and rightly enjoyed. That's what he's come to offer. That's what he's come to offer, a life with God. But the way to receive it is directly counter to the way that fallen flesh wants to receive things. It's directly counter to the way that we're accustomed to desire things. So our, our enemy says, this is our experience, right? Our enemy says, trust your desires. Trust them. Trust what your flesh says. You know best. You know best. Now seek how to get that. Get, them, get the good things and get them now. And to that, Jesus says this very hard word. If you want life, if you want abundance, if you want the restoration that I offer, then do the opposite of what just comes naturally to you. Deny yourself. Let the desires of your flesh go to the cross with me. And you'll find life. And then he gets down to this fundamental level of, of desire. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That's life and death language. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For the sake of God's kingdom, for the, for the sake of the good work of restoration filling the earth, for the sake of being part of God's restorative work, whoever is willing to lose everything and die for God's honor will receive eternal life. That is, that's a long-term gain. He's talking long-term stuff, long-term goodness. And he's saying that is far more wonderful than the sum of all the short-term desires that you have. Add up every short-term thing you could possibly want. Stack it up as high as you can stack it. It doesn't, it doesn't come close to the wonder and goodness that I have in store for you. But this sounds an awful lot like suffering. Lose your life? It's a lot of talk of denying oneself taking up a cross, losing one's life. And he's framing that. He, he's framing that call with this statement that this is the way we follow him. By following him in his own rejection, his own death, his own suffering, he is not making life with Jesus sound great. Admittedly, I think this message is especially hard for us in modern America. Uh, 
for the past hundred years, our society, we have devoted all, all kinds of energy, resources to the elimination of suffering and discomfort in every form, every, in every area of life. The resources of science, business, government, education, everything that can be marshaled, we're all gathered together to keep us from experiencing pain and discomfort. I read an article yesterday morning uh, mentioning how excited some people were in the scientific community at the possibility of growing babies outside a mother in a synthetic sack. Some sheep were uh, gestated in that way. So with no, with no thought on the effect on that child, there was celebration that mothers won't have to feel the discomfort of pregnancy or the pain of childbirth. In other areas of life, whatever the source of discomfort, we are promised there is a pill to treat it. We can dull this pain for you. And yet there's this irony for all this striving, for the billions and billions of dollars and time that's put towards just decreasing our discomfort, avoiding unpleasantness, striving to feel happy, we appear to be the most depressed, anxious, and suicidal culture. Certainly age in our country's existence, but perhaps the world has ever known. How? That's where we live. This is, this is what we are told day in and day out. Do not deny yourself. And we can help you to feel better immediately. And Jesus is here claiming that he offers life through the denial of self, through suffering. So his question comes to us as it came to them. Because we, suffering does, it's not pleasant. It's not something we, we want. It's not inherently good. So, he gets to the heart of this. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What if you were able to get everything you want? What if you could have the life you want with the honor and the prosperity that you want? What if you were spectacularly beautiful or an amazing leader or a genius, or incredibly strong? What if people couldn't help but like you? Every conversation you were in, you went away knowing they love me. They couldn't help it. What if you got all that? What then? How long could it last? And at the end, what good would it be?
This isn't just about salvation and making the eternal choice. There's an interesting case here. I think of Thomas Aquinas. He was a 13th century theologian. He was known all over Europe, wrote volumes and volumes, still considered the premier medieval theologian. And towards the end of his life, he had some kind of encounter with Jesus. And he never wrote again. And he said of all the volumes, the thousands of words that he had written, straw, straw. This is, this is about how you live as a Christian. God is always interested in what we value. He's always interested in what is shaping our decisions, where, where our decisions come from, where our affections are leaning. In the Gospels, Jesus is continually talking about investing, rewards, how we grow and flourish, the fruit, fruit that will last. So you, you who you claim Christ, what are you living for? What does it profit you? It's a question about how you are setting your mind on the things of God or on the things of man. There's really only the two. Who are you believing about what matters? Because all of this comes to us from voices. Who are we believing about what is worth suffering for? What are you setting your heart on? Now, in today's world, in modern America, the modern West, Satan and his minions are telling you that nothing is worth suffering for. In fact, all that matters is not suffering. It's better, the enemy says, to feel nothing at all, to zero out, to flatten your experience or to feel a low level of chemical stimulation through an electronic device, maybe, than to deny yourself and struggle for some distant good that you, you don't really know what that looks like. This you know. It's just right there. And so the Lord poses his question today, to alert us to what we're swallowing. What does it profit you? Ultimately, what does it profit you? When Jesus comes with the angels in the glory of his Father, and he's bringing the joys and the satisfaction and the wonders of his kingdom, the fullness, and all our temporary self-denials, the, the pains that we, we voluntarily accepted, will seem like a speck. Because that's what we wanted. We, we valued his joys. If you are feeling discontent, take a second. Are you feeling discontent? If you are pondering how green the grass looks over there in some other field, 
or you're experimenting with thoughts about how things would be good if only, if only this changed, if only I shifted that out, her out, him out, if only this. Are you consulting your fallen desires or the Holy Spirit? Where is that desire coming from? Is it coming? Is this according to God and his everlasting kingdom? And according to that kingdom, will this profit you? We'll conclude with Colossians 3 and a bit of Psalm. 73. Colossians 3 echoes Jesus' words here. Paul is restating Jesus and urging us to think as true Christians. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, where you are. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And if you are hearing the Lord's question today, what does it profit you? I want to encourage you to read Psalm 73 later today, which ends with this. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. I was living in the flesh. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And having you, there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And he is my portion forever. Father... It seems we, we don't desire enough. Not that we desire too much. We, desi we don't desire enough. We don't desire you enough. We don't believe you enough. So I pray on our behalf that you would draw us to hunger and thirst for the joys and the goodness of life with you. In Jesus' name.